Hey, Books and Boba listeners, it's Marvin. As you may have heard, last month marked the fifth anniversary of Books and Boba, and as we enter our sixth year as a book club, we're finally doing something that we've been talking about for years. That's right, Books and Boba now has some merch.、Uh, we're launching a bonfire merch campaign、uh, for our first run of official Books and Boba swag, including T-shirts, sweatshirts, and tote bags. Orders for this first run will be open until October 21st, after which orders will be closed, shipped, and delivered to your homes by November 8th. We chose Bonfire as the platform for this app because it allows us to create a pre-order campaign like this, which will hopefully allow us to earn a little bit more、uh, to support the podcast and to maybe even offer some additional content down the line. To check out what we have to offer, go to booksandboba.com and check out our store link. Um, to be taken to our bonfire portal. There, you can check out all of the available apparel and colors, as well as put down your own order. As I mentioned, all sales will go to support this podcast and will allow us to do even more amazing things for Books and Boba down the line. So please check it out.、Uh, it's the stylish way to both support Books and Boba and look cool while doing it. Again, you can find our bonfire store by going to booksandboba.com and clicking on the store link. All right, now on with the show. And welcome back to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue, and I'm Rira Yue. And we are here today for another great author interview. We'll be talking with Chandra Prasad and her latest novel, Mercury Boys, a YA.、Um, I was about to say rom com, but it's not a rom com at all. It's a、no. it's a YA story about、um, a group of girls who visit boys from the past through the power of Mercury and the stereotypes. And for those of you who don't know what Daragio types are,、uh, just Wikipedia it. <laughs> so when I was reading the Daragio types, I was like, I remember this because I played Life is Strange,、um, the video game, and this was part of the tutorial where they went on a big,、um, a big exposition dump about how the Daragio types were the original selfie. Right? It's like the original, original like a- photographic selfie. That's very important. <laughs> Rembrandt exists. <laughs> Van Gogh、uh, exists. Yeah,、um, and so we classified it a couple different ways in our interview, but it's basically a it's a mishmash of genres. It's it's YA、uh, contemporary fiction. It's low fantasy. It's part sci fi,、um, part historical fiction. You learn a lot about chemistry and the eighteen fifties.、Um, what what a wild time the eighteen fifties were! They were just experimenting <laughs> left and right, not caring、yeah. about people possibly dying. It's、yeah. great.、Um, Chandra also mixes in a ton of pop culture knowledge,、um, and yeah, it's it's a really fun read. We had a really great chat with Chandra about. Her book about her coming up as an author, about the themes and characters, and yeah, we're excited to、um, share our conversation with you. So, without further ado, here is our author chat with Chandra Prasad. And. 
And we're here with author Chandra Pasad. Uh, she is the author of On Borrowed Wings, Death of a Circus, Breathe the Sky, Damselfly, and most recently, uh, Mercury Boys. We're very excited to have Chandra on the show. Uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So um, this is a question that I feel like every uh, Asian person feels like it's loaded. Where are you from? <laughs> um, I, well, yeah, it's especially loaded for me maybe because um, I'm half Indian, so I'm half Asian. Uh, and my father is from Bihar, India. And my mother, who is of kind of European descent, was born here. Um, and just to take off from that point, um, I usually call myself a multiracial person or I'm mean, a person of color or, or Asian. I kind of fit all those categories, but I definitely emphasize the multiracial aspect because um, in YA literature and really literature in general, but especially children's literature, there are very few multiracial characters or when they are there, they're not recognized as such. And there are not too many multiracial authors um, that kind of go by that too. Um, and of course, as we all know, it's really important for young people to see themselves represented in, in books and the arts in general. Um, so I've made it a point in my two young adult books, Damselfly and Mercury Boys, to include multiracial protagonists. And, um, you know, that's that's a focal point of the stories. And I'll, I'll continue to do that. Yeah. Um, another question we like to ask on this podcast, um, just sure, because, yeah. you know, we, we focus on Asian, Asian American authors is how did you how did you get started writing? Like, was it a, a lifelong pursuit or was it something you picked up, you know, after you finished all your other Asian duties as a student? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was really lucky in that I have another book person in my immediate or not my immediate family, but semi immediate family. My mother's sister, uh, her name is uh, Maggie Swanson. So she's um, actually now she's Maggie Wetzel, but she's a very prolific uh, children's book illustrator. She's illustrated well over a hundred children's books. So when I was growing up, I constantly, you know, saw her and would see what she was working on and these different books she was working on. And it was, it was pretty amazing to see a successful woman, you know, in the book industry. Um, and early on, I knew I really wanted to, to write, but being Asian, <laughs> I was worried about this because financially, uh, any, you know, being an author is not necessarily financially savvy move, especially in the beginning. So, um, I had it in my head that if I just was able to get started in the industry early and get a, a book published early, I would be all set. And so, I actually got serious really early. I wrote my first book in my teens and found a literary agent when I was 16 um, and really pushed for that. And it, it, you know, and I came very close, but in the end, that book didn't make publication and it's, it's probably in a drawer somewhere, but I, you know, I subsequently obviously had success and um, was able to become a, a working author, but I, I always wanted to do it. And you know, I always loved books from being with my aunt and having a family that always focused on reading and focused on books as this escape and pathway toward adventures and learning and new worlds. So it's something that's always been with me, this desire to be a writer. 
Yeah. It's nice that you had someone in the family who worked in the publishing industry because I feel like being an author, that's such an abstract concept for a job. I feel like a lot of kids don't understand that that is an occupation, especially now with um, a lot of education programs pushing for the scientific fields and uh, defunding the arts. And uh, it's and it's also like really amazing that, you know, you were very encouraged uh, to read a lot and to pursue writing, especially since you wrote as a teenager. Like, I- I'm trying to remember what I did as a teen. I definitely was not ambitious and pushed myself to to get an agent and whatnot. Rira was a prolific fanfic writer, though, right? <laughs> Oh, uh, yes, cool. my 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 dark past. Yes, we're we're never gonna mention that ever again, Marvin. Honestly, um, I think it yeah. helped to not grow up in the age of the internet too, because you know we didn't we didn't have that. So that is such a giant time suck, right? So not having that and just having you know old school computers and the internet was just like in its infancy. So. Um, I think there was still a emphasis on doing things that way. And that's completely lost now, which it, it, for me too, it's lost. You know, I'm, I'm on my phone a lot, way too much and on the screen way too much. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely, reading was definitely encouraged. I don't know if writing was necessarily encouraged. I know that my dad was terrified that I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> I mean, he saw that I was, had some skill in it and he saw that I really loved it and my teachers were encouraging, but I think, yeah, I mean, I don't want to mislead you. I definitely looked at law school and all these other things, too. So it wasn't like I was without panic. I had a lot of panic (laughs) (laughs) about monetizing this career, but it did work out. I mean, in one way or another, it worked out. I didn't I didn't I, I worked consistently as a writer, but early on, I didn't do fiction. You know, I worked as a writer for a company and so on and so forth. So. Um, it's worked out overall, and now I can make a living writing books, but it definitely was was a struggle, for sure, in the early days. So we've read quite a few young adult books, both for the book club and for our author interviews. It seems like a very uh, popular genre for especially Asian authors to write in because of all the, um, I guess, the trappings of YA novels are very exciting, right? The protagonists are young, they're like optimistic, they're like trying to figure stuff out. Um, What drew you to writing uh, in the YA genre? I was writing in the general fiction genre. And one of my books in general fiction is called On Borrowed Wings. And it's about a girl in the early 20th century um, who wants to go to Yale University as an undergraduate. But Yale didn't admit women until she was until 1969. So, uh, you know, decades before this, she wanted to go and there's no route for her to go. And I, I don't think I'm giving too much away because this all happens in the first chapter or two, but in On Borrowed Wings, she ends up going in the guise of her brother. Um, and I, you know, um, I wrote that book and, it, you know, I had a tremendous amount of fun doing it and it, it was, you know, it did well. Um, and it has a lot of the themes that I really like to write about, like gender and race and just the ambiguities of identity, but it was pointed out to me early on in that book's publication that it easily could have been a YA book because of the protagonist's age and a lot of the themes I was dealing with. So I made a pretty, my literary agent and I discussed it at length and I made a pretty 
you know, conscious choice to switch to YA because I was already on that brink anyway. And what I really love about YA is that it absorbs two types of readerships. Um, it, you have your younger demographic, but a lot of, you know, adults love reading YA too. I love reading YA and I always have. So um, because you have kind of that, that merging of, of two sectors, that was really appealing to me. And I think I was kind of in that niche anyway. I just didn't realize it. Yeah, one of the um, like attractive traits of YA is that they're usually coming of age stories, and you know, like we're always coming of age. <laughs> it's not just becoming a teenager or like a, a late teenager to a young adult. It's also being an older adult, going into your thirties and forties. That there was always uh, some kind of me- metamorphosis happening. Um, you mentioned. Um, on Borrowed Wings, and it's also a historical fiction novel. Uh, it seems like that's also a genre that uh, you are interested in. Um, can you tell us more about why you enjoy writing historical fiction? Like, what draws you to writing it? Sure. And I just love your comment, we're, we're always coming of age. I never looked at it that way, but that is so true. You know, <laughs> we are constantly uh, changing and, and hopefully growing. Yeah, I, I love research. I just, I love, love, love research. So one of my books is about traveling circus troops in the early 20th century. That's called Death of a Circus. It's about a, a fictional traveling circus troupe. And I had so much fun, you know, talking to um, circus performers and circus historians, believe it or not, they exist. And, uh, <laughs> you know, performers at Coney Island and just learning about circuses and about the lore and mythology about circuses, especially old ones. And I also wrote a book about, um, it's kind of a reimagining of Amelia Earhart's last attempt to circumnavigate the globe, which we, we all know how that ended, but I also, you know, I love, no, not, not good. (laughs) Um, but I loved, I love doing that too. So like just history has always been a passion of mine and research too. So if I can, you know, if I can find something that I can, I can speak to some of my own experience, but, but I can really delve in and research and, and learn and incorporate that into the book. That's, that's what I'll always go for. So I'm guessing that you go through a lot of Wikipedia rabbit holes. I do. Yeah. I tend to got to be careful with Wikipedia. I try to stay with, you know, books and real like bona fide sources and resources, but of course, Wikipedia is always a tempting choice. Yeah, it's a good starting point, <laughs> I think, for for most research. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, speaking of historical fiction, I, I love that. Let's talk about your newest book, Mercury Boys, because I feel like it's a perfect blend of everything we've talked about so far. It's it's a YA novel. It has historical fiction elements and also some some magical realism, some fantasy, like sci-fi. I don't know. Like, no, it's <laughs> you're right. It's a real mishmash of genres, <laughs> and I myself have trouble kind of quantifying what exactly it is. But um, just in a nutshell, um, it's about a group of modern day girls, um, and the main character uh, Saskia Brown is uh, mixed race, and um, Saskia has to do a research project at her new school about this real life historical figure named Robert Cornelius. And he is semi, not really famous, but he was, he is a little bit in the, the public eye um, for being the first person ever to take a, a selfie. And what I mean by selfie is a black and white daguerreotype taken in, you know, around 18, uh, around 1830. 
five or something like that. So this is, you know, going way back, but he was able to take the first photographic self-portrait that is recorded by history. Um, and I remember about, it's gotta be 10 years ago that there was like a little story about that, that made the news here and there. And I thought that's just, you know, it's really interesting. And the photo that he took of himself is it's a little blurry, but it's very arresting in terms of his expression and clothing and, and really every, all the components of it. Um, so I, I looked him up and I found him quite fascinating. There's not a whole lot about this guy, Robert Cornelius, but we know he's something of a Renaissance man. He was a prolific inventor. Uh, he was a lighting merchant. He was a chemist. He was obviously a photographer. Uh, he created pretty much the lamp that transitioned uh, America from whale oil to cooking oil. Um, so he's really interesting. And then at the same time that I was learning about him and this photograph, I was learning about how daguerreotypes, these old photographs were made in general. And I learned that a lot of very toxic chemicals were used in their manufacturing, including mercury. And mercury itself is known, obviously, for being a poison um, that you don't want to touch or definitely not um, <laughs> drink, <laughs> um, ingest. But it also has a lot of historical mythology around it. And for ages, people have thought that taking mercury, which is harmful, can help with fertility, longevity, uh, immortality, all kinds of crazy things. And in fact, a lot of well-known historical figures like Abraham Lincoln um, took mercury for, for many years. Um, and somehow these two ideas merged in my head, this idea of, you know, mercury and Robert Cornelius. Um, and photography. And I came up with this idea that these modern day girls would be able to visit the people in these old daguerreotypes um, by way of touching mercury. And so the book is a mishmash of the relationships the girls have with one another and what it's like to be a modern teen of color, especially a well, teen, teen of color um, now, a girl. And then it's also, you know, has all these historical episodes where we learn what life was like in the mid 1850s in various situations here in America. Um, and it's got a lot of my, you know, the, the things that I always like to write about, like ambiguity of identity and race and sexuality um, are all explored. So it's got a little of everything. And um, I guess the correct term for it is is a uh, low fantasy. <laughs> so it means I've, I've learned that, that it's a, it's realistic fiction, but elements of fantasy are, you know, in sci-fi are interspersed through the book. So it's really got a little of everything. Yeah. I would pitch it as speculative time travel, coming of age, secret society. Yeah. Like, Rear, I like that better. Very, it's a very <laughs> I might have to hire you. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like this idea of uh, using Mercury because, like you said, there's a lot of mythology behind it. I know there was like one Chinese emperor who thought that Mercury was like uh, like a, a medicine that he could take to be immortal. And uh, Mercury is also was used for mirrors. And I thought it was really interesting because a lot of derogotypes, forgive me if I'm wrong, like the photograph is actually flipped it is like an actual mirror and i thought it was also very fitting for the for like the themes of the book because uh mercury 
not only is it a dangerous substance, but it's also very volatile, which is pretty much the relationship of all of the girls in this book. Their relationship, uh, toxic, yes, and they're also ingesting toxic. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting how everything matched up with the title. Um, Was the title Mercury Boys like always there? Did you have like an alternative title for it? That's a really good question and funny too, because I never thought that the title would be Mercury Boys, but that was always my working title. And then when I kind of got to the end of the book and pitched it to my and showed my agent, she's like, this is a, this is a, like exactly what you said, this title completely matches up with every aspect of this book. So yeah, it was kept Mercury Boys. And for some of my other books, you know, I've had to retitle them depending on what editors have thought. But this one, everyone decided that this was this was the, the correct title for the book. Oh, naming yep. things are the is the hardest. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm with you. That's titles are the hardest thing for me. Yeah. How, how do you come up with names, by the way? I'm I'm curious. Do you like go on like babynames.org and just like <laughs> pull out random names? Or are you the type who like have to uh, just like look up meanings behind the names and like be very meticulous? I think it's a little of both, you know, and then I, you know, just as, as like you and I go about our daily lives, you know, you hear all kinds of names and read all kinds of names and some of them just kind of stick with me. And I think that would, you know, I don't know, I kind of pull them out later, like that would work really well for this character. That's kind of how it develops. You mentioned that one of your passions is to um, create, you know, representation for for mixed um, raced people in your stories. And I love that, you know, two of, um, I mean, your main character and one of the, I guess, would Josh be a secondary character? He's still a central character, right? Yeah, he's still a yeah. central character too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Our, our, our two mixed race right. people, and I, right. I love in the middle, like you never explicitly mention their ethnicity till like maybe like a third of the way through the book, um, but you do allude that they're both Asian of some sort, right? Like Sasuke is part Indian, and then Josh is part Asian at least. And then there's this line in your book where you you include a lot of pop culture references, which I I really appreciate um, because, um, you know, I'm of age to recognize them. And and so I I love that you made your main character like a connoisseur of like quote unquote classic pop culture because she's always making references to like old movies. Like she she did call her Asian love interest like uh, Asian James Dean, which I thought was. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And it was it was very interesting to me. um, The latest census that came out um, because I'm often asked because I have these multiracial characters in the books, you know, like what, what demographic, like how, what percentage of the U.S. population is, is multiracial? And it's, it's been pretty hard to nail down, but this newest census showed that the multiracial population grew by 276%. Um, and now fully one in 10 people, mostly young people are multiracial. So, um, you know, being more than one of these pretty much artificially yeah. branded because right? it's race in general is right. So hard to quantify. And so yeah. kind of um, controversial in, in, in terms of like naming what is what um, to begin with. But um, the fact is that there are all these kids that are not simply one thing or another. Um, and they probably, and they do like you do, if, if you're multiracial and you're part Asian, you still are Asian. Right. And, and, and you are multiracial also. And I think it's so important to kind of, be able to say both both of those things and say and have them be legitimatized. 
are legitimated, I guess is the right (laughs) word. Um, And I think that the more characters we see uh, in books that are, you know, simply multiracial, almost without explanation, the more normal that will become for kids and the the better that is, you know, rather than being this exotic, exotic creature. I think it's also important to to think like you don't only have to be one. You can be both. You can be all of those things. And also all of those things don't define who you are as a person. There's so much more to identity than uh, the color of your skin or uh, what ethnicity your your parents are, uh, especially in a country like America, where um, just history is just all mixed together um to a point where a lot of people don't know where they come from like if you if you ask them like where did your family come from three four generations ago like they're just like i don't know like we're americans like yeah 100 like- <laughs> percent. yeah or they or they're wrong you know they might think they're one thing and then they might find out like oh I, actually that's not even true you know i uh, yeah 100 percent agree with that and then you'd like think about um like there are, there are people of color in this country who are um, like fourth, fifth generation, and they're technically more American than some uh, white people in this country who maybe have been here for like the third generation. Their they're great great grandparents like immigrated from Europe or whatever. So really, you know, like ethnicity <laughs> does not define who you are strictly like there there's more to identity than than just that um what i found interesting though is uh saskia your protagonist is a mixed race black girl and yeah, i thought that I was, was gonna, i i yeah. thought it was fascinating because when we think about time traveling i always joke with my friends saying i would never travel to the past as a woman as like an asian woman that just sounds yeah. like a very bad time and it's probably worse for uh black women in in general. So um how did you tackle this subject of like being a person of color and traveling back in time and having the characters face uh obstacles like prejudice and though slavery was not um legal in the north there's obviously prejudice uh, against black people so i'm yeah. curious as to how you came up with the conflict well i i handled it i hope delicately because um my last book damselfly um which just to give your listeners a quick background is a kind of a it's used in a lot of schools as a companion book to lord of the flies because it's a, another it's a it's also a survival tale about a group of teens on an or a group of young people on an island. Lord of the Flies, actually, they're not teenage yet, um, but the main characters are all female and people of color. But in that book, I have the main character is exactly like me in terms of uh, identity. Like she's half Indian, and and um, and so in writing this one, I didn't want to again do that. Um, I wanted a multiracial character, but I didn't want another half Indian character. At the same time, there's always that question of like, you don't want to write, you don't want to presume to know about the experience of someone who is a different race, you know? So I tried to do my best with Saskia being half African-American, you know, I'm not African-American, so I can't speak to that experience, but I think I did my best in terms of 
um, you know, listening to other people, what that experience would have been like, and then learning in Pennsylvania, um, specifically at that time, what was going on racially. And it was a very volatile situation because as you say, uh, you know, slavery wasn't legal there, but there was still a hell of a lot of prejudice and, and it wouldn't have been easy for her to have gone there at that time. So again, I relied a lot on research and a lot on, um, first person resources to kind of understand what it might've been like for her. And also, you know, taking this idea of someone who would have been displaced in terms of time, right? She's coming from modern times and going back. So she kind of understands what the world is like now, um, but is trying to fit her modern understanding of the world into this time in the 1800s. And, and it's, it's, very much a culture shock, you know, what's going on for her. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so like, what was the most surprising or interesting fact that you've learned about the 1800s? Because you do describe uh, like various points in history, like the Crystal Palace in New York City and uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania, like you said, or was it Philadelphia? It was Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, yeah, but you're right. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, what was the most interesting uh, fact that you learned about that period? I don't know what's wrong with me, but <laughs> most the one that I most. So, right, you said like there's this, you know, there's some uh, history of Philadelphia, and especially uh, different um, ethnic and racial groups there. There's little snippets of what you know life was like, and um, we also have. Um, uh, suffrage movement, early convention for women's suffrage. And then there's a, a pickpocket in, in, in a building that doesn't exist anymore, but it used to be called Crystal Palace. And it was New York's first unofficial World's Fair. This is, it, it happened at this place called Crystal Palace, which since uh, burned down and has been really quite forgotten by history. But my favorite historical element of this book was was actually the Civil War field hospitals because I had no idea how disgusting they were. I mean, the, like the sanitary conditions were so horrendous at these field hospitals that more soldiers died, more healthy soldiers or semi-healthy soldiers that went to field hospitals ended up dying than those who were actually fighting in the Civil War just because of um, bacteria and infection and sepsis and all kinds of horrible things. So those scenes were, um, I don't know. I just found that fascinating researching that. And I really enjoyed writing, writing those passages. Yeah. Uh, that's another thing about time traveling. Modern medicine doesn't exist. Like, right. No antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would not want to go back when there is no antibiotics or a time when people thought that washing hands in between treating patients was like a waste of time. I'm like, right. Ah, no. <laughs> or, or washing, you know, bloody instruments was a waste of time. Might as well just, you know, keep going with the bloody instrument. Right. I had a feeling that, that those passages would be hard for people to get through. I know, yeah. I know. I like I don't do well with with germs and just like gore. Um but yeah, I found those scenes with the field hospital to be probably like like one of the most vivid parts of your book and I was curious as to like how you got it uh so 
I guess, visual visually right. Um, because obviously uh, there's photographs, but there's only like so much you can uh, get from just looking at photographs. So uh, were there um, specific sources that you use to get all of the details right? Mainly, mainly history books, you know, um, I read, I did read a lot on the civil war and a lot of field hospitals. Um, but I also have this, you know, pretty sorted part of my imagination, I guess, you know, <laughs> I, I do write, I do like writing kind of dark, dark stories, um, especially short stories. So that kind of came out a little bit, I guess, in this particular book. Yeah, I mean, the story is about your your main character is dealing with a huge shift in her life. And I mean, the setup itself is like worthy of a CW, like YA TV series because it's it's <laughs> it's so messy. And she is dealing with starting a new life because her mother and her father broke up over like a very like, I guess, juicy like piece of drama. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it sounded like a lot of fun to like to come up with that mess. Like, how did that come about? Well, I just thought about, you know, under what circumstances would this girl um, need to move and why would she be at such a tumultuous? So she moves from Arizona where her parents are getting divorced, as as you said, for very you know, it's not a scandalous good It's not in a scandalous <laughs> way. And I won't, we won't say more than that, but in a scandalous way. And she moves and um, in moving, she loses not only her hometown and her, her home, but she's already kind of on the outs with a lot of her friends who are, who have kind of ignored her because of what's happened with her parents and at school. Um, so she's just starting in such a horrible place, you know, um, that she's kind of ripe for, what happens to her, you know, she, she falls in with, um, a group of friends and some of them can be trusted and some of them can't. And, um, she's ripe for growth. She's ripe for what Rira was saying, uh, is a, a coming of age moment in her life. Right. Um, she's going to emerge as from one person to a completely different person by the end of the book. And I think, you know, we, maybe we don't, we don't have the melodrama that she's been through, but we all have those, those times, especially in our teenage years where we realize that people we thought we could trust, we can and, um, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, I hope that there's some truth to her experience and I hope that it resonates with, with teens who are reading it. Yeah. And again, I just love the fact that the reason, or one of the reasons why the father moves them to Connecticut because he is a huge Gilmore Girls fan and just wants that experience <laughs> for himself. He yeah, I know, right? Especially <laughs> being this dad, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I live in Connecticut and there is no, uh, there is no town <laughs> like the Gilmore <laughs> Girls that I found here, unfortunately. Yeah, like, with the uh, volatile and uh, toxic relationship with some of the girls, um, I... It is very relatable, in my opinion, because at that age, you are so vulnerable and things are so out of your control. And there is this tendency to be drawn to other people who are going through a rough time if you are also going through a rough time. And sometimes that it's not good. The results are not good. Uh, you um, get into a lot of conflict that could have been avoided. Uh, so like, how did you come up with each of the girls' backgrounds? And how did you develop the dynamic uh, between each girl's relationship? Well, just in a, 
a basic sense, I do have to outline things for myself early on. Um, otherwise I get, I get lost in my own processes. So I do do pretty extensive plot outlines from the beginning and I do outline each character. Um, I don't know if I do too much in terms of how they relate to one another that kind of happens organically as I'm writing, but I did have a sense of, uh, you know, there's, there's two sisters, Paige and Sarah Beth and, um, I, I knew, you know, what I wanted them to be. And I knew there's also a character named Adrian who seems, um, pretty innocuous and innocent and, and may or may not be by the end. You know, I, I, I did plot all that out, but one thing that really surprised me was that the character that I by far like the most is, is Lila, who is, um, Saskia's friend and, um, was really meant to be a more secondary character, but I find her by far the most likable and sympathetic character um, in the book. And I didn't expect that. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on that. I mean, she's like the only person with common sense yes, in the entire I think story. Right. I feel like. She's yeah. the only person with common sense, but she also gets persuaded way too easily and makes bad decisions. And I'm yeah. like, this is the most teenage girl thing. Like, it doesn't even matter <laughs> if you have like a good head of, like over your shoulders. Like if your friends peer pressure you, like there, there's just so many nope. things that can go wrong. <laughs> It's as long as you're there, you know you can get them out of it because you're the common sense friend. <laughs> well, one thing that really surprised me um, in terms of response to the book is I, from the get-go, was terrified about the Mercury because, I mean, there's no no adult in the world that wants to promote, you know, touching or ingesting Mercury. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, and I was hoping, like, and I'm, I'm praying this comes through in the book and that I don't have some kind of copycat situation because you know, as a, especially as a mom, this is the worst thing I can imagine, but none of that has come out in the critiques of the book. The the critiques of the book are all about how they wish Saskia had more common sense. The main (laughs) character had more common sense, you know, and didn't, didn't make such rash impulsive decisions and, and wasn't so naive. And I found that really interesting because I think it maybe speaks more to, I think teens today are probably a lot more worldly and resilient than (laughs) Then you know, certainly I was in my generation, and I was I was pleasantly surprised by that. I was pleasantly surprised by the pushback. Like, no, I, you know, I can't imagine letting my friend do that, or you know, not kind of talking her down from the ledge. That kind of that kind of comment, I heard a lot, and I uh, I'll definitely incorporate that into to future or think that through for future books. That's interesting, but I think that also means that your your story is working because I think you're supposed to feel frustrated with Saskia's <laughs> decisions, right? Hope yeah, so, I mean so. she's in a very she's in a very vulnerable <laughs> position and you know like yeah. it seemed like she was going through a depressive spiral and it's hard yeah. when you don't have professional help or if you don't have an adult who is there all the time and you have friends who uh can manipulate you and like it's it was really frightening to me because uh, one of the main characters Paige um, she like even though a lot of the things that she said, I was like that that ain't satis- that ain't scientifically correct. Like I don't know why you're telling your friends that it's okay to ingest mercury. Um, <laughs> but she was so persuasive, and I was like, wow, like this is the danger of 
just have like you don't know if you're going to fall into that trap if someone is manipulating you to that level. Um, And I thought that was just like brilliantly written because it did terrify me. Thanks, Rira. Thank you. Yeah, and to be fair, I think you included plenty of warnings of like, this is what will happen to you if you eat mercury. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) There hasn't been any, you know, nothing yet. Think knock on wood. Like, I don't, I don't think that's gonna be happening with this book. And um, I think it is pretty much treated as you know substance abuse, which which it is. But yeah, yeah, no. Paige is very. um, I don't want to give anything away, but Paige is a difficult character, and um. I'm glad I didn't know a page when I was a teen, for sure. <laughs> when you were a teenager, but yeah. I think everyone knows a page yes. in their life. Now, yes, and yeah, by now I have encountered at least one page, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, like Marvin mentioned earlier that Saskia is really into like old pop culture, old Hollywood films, black and white films specifically. And I thought that was interesting because it seemed like she glamorized the past quite a lot and it it made her attraction to Cornelius uh pretty convincing in my opinion because she already has this mindset of like oh back in the old days people were like more mature or like way cooler and it like was that something that was intentional for you or did the um I guess like the old Hollywood um I guess like obsession come in later into her character traits that's a that's such a good um correlation you made and i believe it or not i had not made that myself i mean i definitely see her as um being able to romanticize not only the past but uh and being able to romanticize like fiction you know being able to romanticize these these elements that of 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 stories she's heard that are that are not true but that does make a lot of sense, right? I mean, she she loves not old movies or classic movies not only because she can relate to them in some way, but most of all because it's escapism for her. And I get the sense during parts of the book that when she time travels and sees Robert Cornelius, it's that same thing. It's the same type of escapism. She's avoiding problems and issues that she needs to deal with whether it's her parents or the literal and figurative toxicity around her friends to see Cornelius, who is, uh, you know, an outlet, an escape. Yeah, I feel like modern day teenagers also go through the same thing. Obviously, they don't steal uh, derogatypes from museums and sleep with them. But it did kind of remind me of early days of Tumblr, when a lot of teenagers would, I guess, like project uh, their fantasies on, I guess, celebrities or literary figures. I definitely saw a lot of people who read like dark academia books and were just like, oh, if I was in this world, this is how I would interact with this character. And I feel like that is such a teenager thing because of escapism, like you said, because so there's so many things in their life that is not controllable. Also, I, I feel like um, the, the stereotype boys were also all hot, right? That's why they picked them. I think so. I mean, right? I, it, yeah, I mean, I think there was this visual component that was you no know, less than deep, like a superficial component to all yeah. of it. 
which is also, you know, in keeping with, um, sometimes in keeping with, you know, teenagers and also, uh, just pop culture too, you know, the icons that yeah. we, that, that, that all people kind of <laughs> emulate and, and, and rejoice over. Um, and I was going to say, when you're talking about Tumblr, I also see that on TikTok a lot. I see oh, yeah, definitely. this construction, <laughs> yeah, these videos um, where the person has made a visceral under, uh, construction of the world of the book. And I find it very fascinating, right? You know, um, yeah, there's escapism in a lot of our, our social media nowadays. Yeah. And another thing that I thought was uh, very quintessentially teen teenage was secret societies like having your own club with your own rules i i feel like everyone has kind of gone through this phase of just like having i guess like their own fight club where they're like <laughs> we're in a fight club you can't tell anyone that we're in a fight club that's against the rules um so my question is like what what are your thoughts on secret societies? Why are they so alluring to people? And why is it a trope that a lot of people love reading in books? There's something very timeless about secret societies, right? There have always been secret societies and there have always been books about secret societies. It's not necessarily called a secret society. Maybe it's a secret club, secret organization, this underground group of friends. So um, it's always been there. And I definitely have been you know, interested in secret societies. And I think also I, I went to Yale University and Yale University is, you know, big on their secret societies, skull and bones, uh, you know, scroll and key, all of these things. And there is this mythology around it. And there's also this desire to not only learn about secret societies, but to deconstruct them, right? Like to kind of take them apart and to see not only why are we fascinated by them, but what kind of, what's the What's the understory of them? Like, what are they all about in a really realistic way? So in making these girls have the Mer this Mercury Boys Club or this dead, you know, this literally this dead boyfriends club, I think it's interesting for them and for us as readers to be able to permeate that club and to see what's going on right inside. You know, I like to read books like that myself. So that was a decision I made as an author to kind of be able to see this club from the inside out. Yeah, like, I, I feel like part of the reason why secret societies and secret clubs are alluring to teenagers is because everybody wants to belong. Like, everyone's, everyone wants to belong to something and also feel special. And I feel like uh, with the derogotypes and having them touch Mercury, which is considered taboo, it makes them feel like they're invincible, all very very much relatable to teenage fantasies, in my opinion. Yeah. And everyone wants to matter, right? I think I just read a, a New York Times article on that about someone that was adopted and um, kind of avoided looking at for their birth parents. But at the end of the day, this adult, now adult said, like, really, all my life, all I wanted was to matter. And I wanted someone else to think I mattered. And that's exactly what you're saying, that a secret society, if you get you know, if you get in, if you're recognized as being good enough to get in, then, then you suddenly matter. And I hopefully we all learn later in life that we all matter anyway, you know, um, because we're all individuals and unique and we all have something to offer. Um, but definitely teens don't recognize that natively, you know, they don't they don't intuit that. 
Yeah, that's right, kids. Love yourselves. And, <laughs> and if your friends come up with a list of very, very long rules that uh, may seem sketch to you, run away. <laughs> I think that's wise advice. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, the book is called Mercury Boys. It's a very, it's a fun read. I was, um, I, I sat down with it um, to, to prepare for this interview. And then before I knew it, I was done. And it was like 3 a.m. So it's definitely a, a very engaging read. Thank you for writing such a, such a fun oh, book. Thanks, Marvin. I appreciate that. No, I mean, that means a lot to me. Thank you. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I'm so glad you have this podcast because I think it is so important to highlight Asian American experience, whatever that might be. Um, so I appreciate that you have it. And I really appreciate that you asked me to be on. Thank you. And yeah, um, what's next for you, Tandra? Um, I'm working on a couple of new projects right now, including another novel, but I'm at an early stage, so I can't tell you too much about it. But more to come, <laughs> more to come for sure. All right. Publishing is also a Sounds secret great. society where you keep secrets <laughs> for about we a like year to think and a half. So, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you get in? Well, everybody gets in a secret way. It's never the same way. <laughs> that is true. It's there's no glamour there though, but it is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba, and we'll hope to talk to you um, when we learn more about your new book. Sounds great. I'd love to come back. Thank you. And that was Chandra Prasad. You can find her latest book, Mercury Boys, at booksellers everywhere. Always remember, if you can, please support your local bookstores. And included in that is the Books and Boba bookshop. Um, page it's, it's it's everyone's local bookstore because when you buy a book from there not only do you support your local bookstores you also support our podcast which is you know your local asian american book club is it is it local when you know we have listeners everywhere i mean they're listening to us locally in their ears so technically that, i i guess so i guess that counts technically <laughs> uh, rira please remind us what our book club pick is for october 2021 we are reading Inugami Clan by Sashi Yokomizo, and it is a very old mystery novel. Um, I think it was written in like the 1950s, um, but Sashi Yokomizo is like considered like the Japanese Conan Doyle. So uh, the main character in Inugami Clan is uh, the detective is very peculiar, very quirky like uh, Sherlock Holmes and I read this like when I was a teenager and it was so it, w it was just like a campy dark mystery novel that I really that that really struck a chord with me and I thought it was a I, I think it's a pretty good read for Spooktober yeah um, excited for our first this is our first detective mystery in a while we've had a couple cozies we've had a couple noirs excited to get back to the world of the gentleman quirky detective so yeah, we'll be discussing this book at the end of the month. Um, if you've already finished it, um, please let us know your thoughts on our Goodreads groups. And we'd love to include your thoughts on our podcast episode. But until then, um, thanks for listening to this episode of Books and Boba. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. You, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. 
I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper.